Those nails should have been our nails. That crown of thorns should have been our crown of thorns. But because of love, the Father did that for us. And if you want to defeat pride, contemplate the wrath of God taken upon His Son and not us. How do we overcome pride and envy? This is Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Pride is at the root of every sin, and we must learn to master the sin that is crouching at our door. Thankfully, the Bible gives us many ways to overcome pride. Here's David with seven strategies to overcome the sin of pride in part two of The Problem of Pride. So a way to defeat pride, to think the, think the reality that you can solve every problem is simply to say, I am not the Christ. All of us need to say that regularly, and that's a way to, to, to defeat pride in our hearts because too many of us think we're the Christ and we can fix everything. We can't. We're mere humans. We're broken. We're dust. We've got to let God be the fixer of other people. Third, in verse 28b, John says, you've got to know your role in God's universe. So right after he says, I am not the Christ, John the baptizer goes on and says, but I have been sent before him. Now, in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, there is a clear prophecy regarding the messenger who will precede the Messiah. And then you get into the New Testament and John is the one who precedes Jesus and points to him and he says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If you go to Matthew, the 11th chapter and read verses 10 through 13, please do so at some point. And you will see that Jesus clearly there says that John the Baptist is that messenger. He clearly says, as in the Old Testament, this messenger would be a type of Elijah. Jesus clearly says that John the Baptist is that Elijah. So... John is saying here, I know my role. I'm the messenger. I came to point to the Christ to tell people that's who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but I am not the Christ. He knew his role. <laughs> there was a seven footer who played for Coach Smith at North Carolina after I played. I heard this story and he was put into the game and caught the ball and turned toward the basket and nobody came near him. He was wide open at 15 feet. And, you know, Coach Smith had given him specific instructions as he entered the game, don't shoot the ball. You know your role, don't shoot the ball. Block shots, get rebounds, don't shoot the ball. He's wide open and he shoots the ball. Well, Coach Smith immediately takes him out of the game and he goes up to him and said, why did you shoot the ball? And the guy said, oh, Coach, I was wide open. And Coach Smith said, there was a reason you're wide open. <laughs> the other coach had looked at the game films and he knew he couldn't shoot a lick. His role was to rebound and block shots. Folks, there's a role for you in God's eternity and it may not be somebody else's role. And as you look at somebody else who may be succeeding bigger or better than you, it doesn't matter. God needs to fulfill his role in them. He's fulfilling his role in you. Please avoid the snare to compare because when you do so, you're only inviting the pernicious problem of pride, which then will produce jealousy and envy and start eating up your soul. Then in verse 29, John the baptizer gives an illustration regarding this whole idea of knowing your role. 
He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So the illustration that John the baptizer uses here is a wedding illustration. And he says, there is the bridegroom. And of course, then there's the bride that's uh, presumed in this uh, illustration. But there's also the best friend that John calls himself. And that really is like the best man today. Now, what he's saying is this, at the wedding celebration, as the bride and the groom are up front making their vows to one another, everything is focused on them. It's all about, in this illustration, the bridegroom. He's the central focal point of everything that's going on. What you don't want is for the best friend, the best man to insert himself into the wedding and start to become the center of attention. That's what John's saying here. Can you imagine a wedding celebration where the best man right next to the bridegroom starts dancing a little bit, maybe starts singing a song, maybe starts telling a joke, starts getting everybody to look at him. And John says here, no, I'm the best man and my job is to focus people on the bridegroom because that's my role. My role is the best friend to point people to the bridegroom and my joy, he said, is complete when I do so. Folks, you'll find joy in your life when you point people to Jesus, when you realize the role he's called you to do and you're doing it well. At that point, it's joy, not jealousy, that consumes your heart. So John the baptizer continues with verse 30 and he says these powerful, significant words. He says, I must decrease and he, Jesus, must increase. Wow. <laughs> and as I get older, more and more I feel that. As I approach my day, when I'll go be with the Lord, I've got to decrease and he must increase. It's all about him. Let me give you two illustrations that I find very helpful here. One is about Charles Spurgeon. He's a, a minister who preached in the late 1800s, powerful, dynamic preacher. I mean, when he was 25 years old, he was preaching to tens of thousands of people in London, England. His sermons were so powerful at 25, they were being published in 20 different major newspapers around the world. Probably the one that was most interested in publishing his sermons in the late 1800s was <laughs> the New York Times. The New York Times in the late 1800s published Charles Spurgeon's sermons. Can you imagine how far we've come since that day? There was another minister in the city named F.B. Meyer. Uh, F.B. Meyer started a church there in London. He had about 150 people who came every week. And every week he would watch all the thousands stream by his church and go to Spurgeon's church. He felt so jealous, so envious. Pride pickled his heart until finally he felt like he needed to go to Spurgeon and confess that. And Spurgeon looked at him and he said, F.B. Meyer, don't, don't feel that way. He said, you know, I'm so envious of you because you're preaching to 150 as a shepherd and you know their names. You know your flock. You're involved in their lives. Don't feel that way. I have my role, you have your role. And F.B. Meyer's heart changed at that moment. 
as he realized that God had a call on his life. And he realized his whole job was to point to Jesus and decrease. Spurgeon did the same thing. And the results are left to God. Do your best, give God the rest. One of my favorite Davidisms. Then that's what he did. And so interesting that F.B. Meyer later started writing commentaries on the Bible. And you know what happened to me this week? I was studying this text and I have a, a group of books on my bookshelf about different commentaries of different books in the Bible. I picked this one up and used it to study the Gospel of John, these verses. Did you see who the author of this commentary is? F.B. Meyer. <laughs> he has his place. And he's still influencing hundreds, thousands today. One pretty tall pastor in Charlotte, North Carolina. F.B. Meyer is touching because he knew that he must decrease, Jesus must increase, and he used his gift to the best of his ability. The second illustration has to do with Dr. Billy Graham. Um, I had the privilege of being a part of the dedication service of the Billy Graham Library here in Charlotte, and I was able to get a seat with Marilyn on the front row. Uh, they invited Dr. Graham to come out, and he came on the stage. He was in his 80s. He was a bit frail at that point, and the place erupted into applause. The people stood up with an ovation that you can't even begin to imagine. He was very uncomfortable with it. You could tell it. And with his shaking hands, he finally told everybody to sit down. I remember thinking to myself, my bet is others were as well. What are going to be his first words? And here they were. He must increase and I must decrease. He quoted John 3.30. And that was his life especially as he aged, point to Jesus, become less important. Let him become more important. The superstar of the show, folks, is not a pastor, not a person. The superstar of the show is Jesus. The more you realize that, the less pride you'll have and the more your heart will be filled with gratitude. I'll never forget that moment as long as I live. Then in verses 31 through 34, we have this phrase that I think John the baptizer was trying to teach us. It's all about Jesus. Let me read these words to you. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. So in these verses, we have a wonderful statement where Paul, uh, John even continues in verse 34, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God for the uh, spirit gives the God, for he gives the spirit without measure. Now, what John is saying in these verses is that it's all about Jesus. He came from above to this earth. It's all about Jesus. It's all about him. And so when you realize that everything is all about him and not about you, suddenly your pride starts to shrink and your love for him starts to grow. The sixth point that John the baptizer comes up here with is a whole understanding of understanding the Trinity. You see that in verses 34 and 35. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. 
The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Did you see in these two verses, you have an understanding of the Trinity. For he whom the God has sent utters the words of God, that's Jesus, and he gives the spirit without measure, that was the fullness of the spirit's baptism upon Jesus at his baptism, the the dove descending upon him. And the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. You have the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit all here. Now, why can the Trinity help us defeat the problem of pride? Here it is. In our sinfulness, in our utter depravity, in our trajectory of going to hell, the father in his love for us sent his son into the world to die on a cross to forgive us of all of our sins. And the son in accordance with Philippians 2 verses 5 through 11, willingly submitted himself to the will of the father to come to this earth, taking on the form of a servant to die on the cross to forgive us of our sins. Look at that example of the Trinity. Jesus willingly obeyed the Father. He put himself in submission to the Father. Amazingly, the Son, who is equal with the Father in all power and authority, chose to submit himself to the Father to come to this world to die on the cross. It was by choice he chose humility to die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. We too need to choose humility. Now folks, if you don't choose humility, God might choose humility for you. And you don't want that to happen. So daily choose to be humble. Daily to realize Jesus is the one who came to us. Daily realize he is the superstar, not not us. And when we choose humility, amazingly, in James the fourth chapter, James says, if you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, he will lift you up, which is what exactly happened to Jesus. He humbled himself, died on the cross, was raised from the dead, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father. And one day the Father said, every knee shall bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He exalts the Son to the place of the highest authority because of him choosing humility in every way. Seventh and finally, how do you defeat pride? Know the wrath of God. Let's talk about that for a second. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So if you choose to believe in Jesus, you have the gift of eternal life. You're going to heaven. You can't lose that eternal security. It is a gift to you. But also understand, if you reject Jesus, if you don't believe in him, you have the wrath of God upon your life. Now, there is a passive wrath that the Bible talks about. It is the storing up of wrath against us as we continue to sin against him. Imagine you having a cup, and every time you sin against God, that cup is being filled up with your sins. Now, Jesus in the garden prayed to the Father, won't you take this cup from me? The cup in the Bible is always symbolic of the wrath of God, and we will have to drink of that wrath one day. Jesus said, though, can't you take this cup away from me, knowing that the next day on the cross, he would drink the wrath of God for all of us. How we have filled up that cup, he would drink it himself as a gift to all of us out of love for eternal life. And of course, the father said, no, that's my will for you. You must drink of that cup of my wrath poured out on my children so that they can have the gift of eternal life. And Jesus then bowed his head and said, not my will, but yours, father. Dear friends, when you realize that Jesus drank of that cup of wrath, when you realize that he took the punishment for our sins upon himself, you you know, the punishment befits the crime. 
And our crime was high treason against a holy God. We deserved that cross. That cross should have been our cross. Those nails should have been our nails. That crown of thorns should have been our crown of thorns. That spear stuck in our sight should have been ours. But because of love, the Father did that for us. And if you want to defeat pride, contemplate the wrath of God taken upon his son and not us. And for the rest of your life, as maybe some bad things even happen to you, simply say, well, the wrath of God isn't upon me. The wrath of God isn't upon me. The wrath of God isn't upon me. It's upon his son. Why? Because of love. We deserve hell. Yet we now have heaven because of the grace gift of eternal life. If you believe in grace, how can you be proud? It's all a gift, especially the gift of eternal life. If you believe that the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus, how can you be proud? Because he did that out of humility to love us so profoundly. Dear friends, if you want to overcome pride, listen to John the Baptizer's words to us today. Operate in joy, not jealousy. And let me go over them one more time. First of all, all you have is a gift. Secondly, you're not the Christ. Thirdly, know your role in God's plan. Fourth, I must decrease. He must increase. Five, it's all about Jesus. He's the superstar. Number six, understand the Trinity and how Jesus submitted himself to the Father in humility and then God lifted him up. And seventh and finally, know that your salvation is by grace through faith, but also know the wrath of God taken upon his son. What a glorious gift. What do we have to be proud of? Let's all choose humility. Let's conquer pride for out of that poisonous root of pride flows all of the sins against the Father. Let's be free, folks, free from our prisons of pride, free to serve the living Lord Jesus Christ. You're listening to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Coming up, David joins me in a conversation about his latest Davidism. We'll be right back. This is the Ministry Minute, focusing on ministries that have a positive impact on our community. I'm Mark McManus, and here is Jim Noble with the Dream Center Charlotte. Hello, my name is Jim Noble with the Charlotte Mecklenburg Dream Center. And Bo and I, the director of the Dream Center, just wanted to take a minute and tell you guys thank you. Moments of hope, David and Marilyn Chadwick, all of you there, Dean, uh, we all have been phenomenal for us. Uh, you, you've been there since 08 when we started King's Kitchen, and that kind of grew into the Dream Center and the meals we've fed the last eight weeks, probably exceeding 55,000 now, I guess. Uh, we're so grateful you guys have made such an impact in the city by reaching out to those that have needs greater than we have. And uh, what do you think, Bo? Yeah, so it's been amazing to, to just watch the, the work that's happened um, with the meals as they've gone out. You know, uh, we, I always tell people it's not about the food, it's about the relationships that are formed and the ministry that takes place. And so, um, and JT Williams and Thomasboro and Reed Park, I mean, it has opened up doors that we never thought would be open. Um, you know, we've seen people come out um, and just welcomed us with open arms, just so grateful for the meals. And, and we just thank you moments of hope and just this couldn't be this wouldn't be possible without you guys and you know uh the, the first call we made uh when we decided to go this route 
and provide these meals was the moments of hope and it was uh, a phone call that was met with a resounding yes and so we're so appreciative of you guys and just um, everything you all do for us and for the kingdom. And not only that, but you uh, also set into our kitchen in the Dream Center now. This week started producing meals there and as the restaurants open back up, all the meals will shift to the Dream Center with the kitchen you helped us do. So we're so grateful for you guys. God bless you. God bless Moments of Hope. And we just pray an unlimited return harvest on the seed you sowed into this ministry. Thank you very much. I'm Jen Houston. Thanks for listening today. Joining me in the studio is our pastor, David Chadwick. David, thanks for being with us. Uh, thank you, Jen. It's great being with you as well. Well, in your morning e-devotions, you've been in a series that you are calling Davidisms. And today's is, I'm convinced, written just for me. And you call it, be responsible, but don't take responsibility. Yeah, Jen, a lot of people might not know, but I have a graduate degree in counseling from the University of Florida. And I learned a lot of truths there about how to care for other people. This is one of those truths that I learned there. So let's begin. Folks, are you dependable? Do you keep your promises, honor your commitments, accept consequences when things go wrong? If so, you're being a responsible person. Responsible people do what it takes to move forward in life with a clear conscience. They seek God's will above all else. That's 1 John chapter 2, verse 17. What's something responsible people should not do, though, ever? and that is take responsibility for the lives of other people. Others must live with their own decisions. If you try to take responsibility for them, you become an enabler. You are not responsible for someone else's choices. Listeners, Jen, may I say that again and again, you are not responsible for someone else's choices. They must make their own decisions and suffer the consequences accordingly, which is often the only way they will learn and ultimately get well. How then is it possible to love another without taking responsibility for that person? Through prayer, mm. an encouraging word, loving them unconditionally, practicing the presence of Jesus for them, but not taking responsibility for their bad choices. Do this today, dear friends. Be responsible, but don't take responsibility for other people. It will help you live life to the full. That's so good, so helpful. And my counselor echoes that same phrase in a way where she says that the person who's affecting you negatively, you can't water their soul. Mm -hmm. They can water their soul with their relationship with Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. You are responsible for your own heart. Well, I know a lot of people understand this image that relationships are often in triads. There are three people. There is the victim, there is the enabler, and there's the persecutor. There's the victim who feels like, oh, all of life is against me, so they therefore look for other people to solve all their problems. The persecutor keeps telling them how awful they are, and you've got to have that person to keep the victim in their victimhood, mm -hmm. but there's got to be the enabler as well. That's the person who allows the victim to stay in their victimhood. The only way that triad can be defeated 
defeated is for the enabler and the persecutor to remove themselves from the victim's life. Mm-hmm. Not still not love them, but give them the opportunity of making their own decisions and suffering the consequences thereof. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, and every person in Alcoholics Anonymous knows what I'm talking about right now, when you do that, it allows the victim no longer to be the victim, but to suffer the consequences for their decision and start becoming well and whole. This is so powerful. This is such a wonderful foundational truth for freedom. Thank you so much. Well, I want everyone out there to be emotionally free and not caught, be caught in the quagmire of those insidiously difficult relationships. And it can be found when you simply become responsible for your life, but don't take responsibility for other people's lives. You will be set free. Mm. Everyone, if you'd like to receive daily a moment of hope from me, please go to momentsofhopechurch.org. Subscribe there. They'll arrive in your inbox every morning at 7 a.m. They're free of charge. They're a gift from my heart to yours to give you daily a moment of hope. This has been Moments of Hope with David Chadwick, Senior Pastor of Moments of Hope Church. Today's message is from our online worship service, and you can be a part of our service each Sunday morning at both 9 and 11 o'clock by going to momentsofhopechurch.org. And while you're online, be sure to sign up for David's daily Moments of Hope, delivered every morning to your inbox. And also, check out David's weekly HopeCast. They're both free and available through our website. Again, that web address is momentsofhopechurch.org. For David and the entire Moments of Hope Church staff, this is Jen Houston asking you to pray for those battling COVID-19.